Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, recording in sunny San Diego, where, not so coincidentally, I run a vegan, organic, gluten-free coconut energy bar company called Rickaroons that is everything you'd expect from a company that started baking in my dad's kitchen, selling at our local farmer's market. As of February, things were going great. Our product was sold at Costco roadshows, we had new packaging scheduled to roll out in April, our wholesale business with mostly independent juice bars and coffee shops was thriving, and we were expecting revenue to double year over year. So, when COVID-19 brought those plans to a crashing halt, I wasn't exactly enthused. To help cope, I started this podcast, sort of an audio shoulder for other entrepreneurs to cry on. All of my past episodes have focused on one point. We are all in this together. Today's interview is going to build on that notion, though this time in a hugely positive way. This is our first episode since the protests erupted nationwide and then worldwide following the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Today is June 13th, 2020. The world is in turmoil. There are peaceful protests for racial equality, occasionally marred by a few idiots looting, and more than a few bad examples of police responses to the protests, which of course is in itself ironic as the protests are largely speaking about exactly those types of responses. And of course the COVID saga continues, with stories good and bad, New Zealand completely eradicating the, the virus, and reopening all business, while my home state of California continues to see a rise in new cases. But this show as a template that our legion of unsponsors and someday actual sponsors insist we adhere to, so we'll have to come back to that. Our guest today in just a few minutes is Valerie Brandis, a friend of my family's for going on 20, 25 years, and founder of an award-winning independent London-based publisher focused on creating space on the bookshelf for diverse ideas and writers. She's amazing, smart, witty, driven, and a necessary force for good, and you're gonna love her. Normally right here I do a fun fact designed to make you smile. Today's fun fact is more in the spirit of the fact that the world is currently a giant dumpster fire and we could all use a little smile specifically inspired by the notion that the world is not 100% bad, and there is hope. Our guest today, just two days ago, successfully raised over $200,000 in crisis funding for inclusive publishers, including her business, Jacaranda Books. This money will help continue the fight to carve out the small, literary, inclusive space in the commercial market, which is so essential to the publishing ecosystem. A backup fun fact she doesn't know this, but I totally had a crush on Valerie when I first met her at the ballet class where her daughter was dancing alongside my younger sister. I was 12, and she was an adult. I record this part before the interview, so odds are Valerie will never listen and will never know. Before we move on to the facts and figures of the day, one quick thing. This show, like I said earlier, is designed to be an audio shoulder to cry on and a reminder to small business owners that you are not alone. So, if you know a small business owner whose business has been affected, please share this podcast with them. And if they are well-spoken and or entertaining, please share them with me at smallbizgoneviral.com so they can share their story and entertain the tens of you out there listening. Because this show is designed to be a time capsule of sorts, I think it's helpful to establish a baseline of statistics to serve as objective quantifications of our fight for public health and economic prosperity. So with that, let's get to the facts and figures. Starting with COVID-19 stats, things have gotten weird. 
New cases are still going up in the United States, including California, but for some reason, everyone is either bored, stupid, or just over it, because if you walk around town, you would guess that we beat it, that we eradicated the coronavirus. Worldwide daily new cases are at an all-time high and still trending upward. Yesterday, there were 137,000 new cases, just yesterday alone. Good news, though, is the daily death rate has been consistently declining, down about 40% from its all-time high in early April, from 8,400 a day to just under 5,000. In the U.S., things are all over the place. We have had over 2 million total diagnosed cases and 116,000 deaths, with roughly 1 million active cases. The outbreak in New York City was so hugely catastrophic that whichever way the Big Apple trended, so too have the national numbers. So right now, U.S. COVID daily deaths have declined overall because New York City has declined so much that its decrease outweighs any increases we are seeing over the rest of the country. On to the economic stats. The economy is all over the place. Weekly unemployment filings continue to steadily decline, but are still double the pre-COVID weekly record. But businesses are reopening, but COVID cases are on the rise, so there could be a second wave slash extension of the first wave. But the PPP is apparently doing its job because in spite of roughly 10 million new unemployment filings this past month, there were more net rehirings, and therefore, somehow, there was actually a decrease in the overall unemployment rate in May. But the PPP money will begin running out shortly, Remember, it's only designed to keep payroll at pre-COVID rates for eight weeks. But hopefully a reopening of business will help prevent an increase in unemployment without that second wave. So things are complicated. Just ask friend of the show, Dow Jones. And I realize I've never explained what the Dow is. So here's this from Investopedia. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is a stock market index that tracks 30 large publicly owned blue chip companies trading on the New York Stock Exchange. It was designed to serve as a proxy for the health of the broader U.S. economy, though doesn't do a great job considering it's currently right where it was a year ago, in spite of the fact that unemployment is 10% higher than it was at this time last year, and general uncertainty is absolutely everywhere. I added that last part. The Dow has steadily risen since it bottomed out at the beginning of COVID, up over 20%. However, at the end of this last week, it dropped 1,800 points in one day, in part at least, due to the Fed announcing no new changes to monetary policy. And the definition of monetary policy and the Fed will have to wait until a future episode. Lastly, widespread protests continue, and it seems like the focus of legislation at all levels, local, state, and federal, is shifting from COVID-19 support to putting together reforms or overhauls to address the root cause of those protests centered on racial inequality and inequity. Only time will tell if our country's legislators can do two things at once. Okay, time to add another voice to the show. Today's guest is Valerie Brandis, who, after moving from the U.S. to London, founded and continues to run Jacaranda Books, an award-winning independent publisher of award-winning adult fiction, nonfiction, and young adult novels. Their ethos is simple. They are committed to publishing groundbreaking writing with a dedication to creating space on the bookshelf for diverse ideas and writers.
Val, thanks so much for being on the show. Hi, Grant. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, so let's just go ahead and get right into it. Um, you know, like I said in, in the intro, I've known you since I was about 12 and you and I have always joked that in your mind, I am still 12, even though I am, uh, you know, married and whatnot, which would be slightly inappropriate, but, um, you know, t tell us about, about you and, you know, let's see, when did you move from San Diego back to, over to London? When did you start your business and what gave you the idea to, start such an amazing and and very necessary business and just tell us tell us a little bit about that yeah no so i think i've actually known you since you were even younger than 12 to be honest but we won't go into all the details there um <laughs> i've known you a very long time and love her dearly um no so i oh god so i grew up in london and i uh, went to i have to go back to sort of give you the proper context of it all but I grew up in London and ended up going to university at the University of Exeter, um, doing essentially what was an American studies degree. And that degree was a four year degree that took me in my third year to America. And my professors on my course decided that I would do well at UC Santa Cruz of all places. So I was sent to Santa Cruz for one year. And um, the first day of school, I met Sean, my husband on campus. So we've been, and that was 1989, and we've been together ever since. So I was living in San Diego for the early part of my marriage to Sean, which is how I met Grant, your family, and your lovely mum. And um, but I've always, I've sort of harbored aspirations to write. That's really what I wanted to do all my life. Um, and so when I was in San Diego, I used to, I was part of the write the San Diego Writers Group. And I used to go along with Judy Reeves and a few of the other writers there. And uh, also when my children were born, I got a job working at Barnes & Noble. So I worked at Barnes & Noble for about five years in the early Harry Potter days when all those books were coming out. So I've always had an, a real passion and interest for books, for writing, for the whole sort of literary world. That's always been part of what I love to do. Um, but I also, you know, San Diego, I really love San Diego, but I re it was hard for me. You know, it, I'm a Londoner, I'm a, or at least a city person. I, I really am at home in cities. And so growing up in San Diego, I never really found my place. You know, I, that's how I felt. And so once my kids had reached, well, when Camila was about to go into middle school, I thought, you know what, maybe now's the time. The idea was to go for two years go back to London for two years, have her and my son know my family, know where I grew up, grew up, and then, you know, we could come back and be in San Diego. So we ended up leaving um, in 2009, and um, the two years ended up being 12, 11 years, you know, we stayed, we didn't, we didn't go back after that. So when I got back to London, it was a bit of a shock to the system because obviously things move very fast. And I thought I was going to be able to just go there and put my kids into the local school that I went to and it would just be all easy. But it wasn't that way at all. So we struggled to find a school. We struggled to find somewhere to live. You know, it was just really a hard few years of everyone getting adjusted. And I needed a job like ASAP, you know, and I didn't I hadn't been in the UK for such a long time that, you know, it was hard for me to just sort of go out there and get any sort of position. So. Once everyone had been settled into schools, I then found a course, a master's in publishing studies course that was close enough to my house that I could drop them at school in the morning, 
pick them up in, in the evening and do classes in, in between. So I did that for a year and um, that was at City University in London. And um, that, on that course, what was brilliant about that course actually was that they brought in all of the sort of heavy hitters of the publishing industry. So you got to sort of be in front of all of these people. And one of them, um, this guy called Andrew Franklin, who's sort of like a long family history in UK publishing, a brilliant publishing company called Profile Books, which they do non-fiction books, but sort of for the lay person, it's really kind of cool titles. Um, so side note, uh, by this time I'm like, you know, mid to late forties. So I'm like way older than anyone and I've got two children. So the typical scenario when you're coming out of an MA like that is you're going to go and be an editorial assistant. Well, no one was going to hire me as an editorial assistant at 40 to eight or wherever I was and two ch children. So I was really struggling to find a job. And, um, Andrew Franklin had a position opening up at Profile and I absolutely loved their publishing and their, you know, and one of the things they did at the time was they were the only ones to actually offer a paid internship. So they offered a two month paid internship, which was sort of like revolutionary in the industry at the time, because what they were doing was like getting a lot of these really talented, really sort of capable young people and just working them for nothing, you know? So it's not slightly more taboo now to just have people work for nothing, but still not quite where it should be. But yeah, they had this paid internship and they just published amazing books and it was just great. So the job that he offered me was for office manager. And I really did not want that job because we all know what that job is, you know? And I just thought, I'm just gonna have a miserable time here, but I really wanted to work in publishing and I wanted to be a profile. So I took the job and, you know, I lasted one whole year. <laughs> Um, but I just, you know, I had enough of ordering toilet paper and fixing the photocopy machine to be fair. So I thought, I think I can do more than that with myself. So it was one year, um, lovely uh, company to work for, really not such a great job. I mean, it's a good job for somebody, but it wasn't good for me. And so literally, you know, I left there and at the end of 2011 and 2012, you know, I thought I, I'm going to do it this year is the year that I start this business. So I just did it. I didn't have any clue about business, like none. And when I say that, I mean about the practicalities of business. You know, my, Sean has a business and I understood business from the way he did it, but I didn't understand any of the real kind of foundational stuff about how to start a business. But I had a computer and I had um, a logo and uh, I went and got a business card and then I was in business. <laughs> And uh, the first book I published was um, this book called Fashion Africa. I don't know if you're looking at me. I hope not because my eyes are all over the place. But um, Fashion Africa, which was a, <clears throat> a big coffee table book. Um, it was of 40 different designers that manufacture, source and produce sustainably and ethically on the continent in Africa. And it was just gorgeous images in that book. So I was really excited to publish that one. And I published a novel. Um, a book called Glass by Patrick Wilmot and those are the, were the first two and I thought I'd try illustrated and I'd try you know paperback black and white printing you know and, and see how that worked out for me. Um, I never did another illustrated book again you know I've learned my lesson but um, it's, so I got the bug and I, after that it was just about going to places, talking to people, um, meeting with agents, other publishers, going on social media which you know this back then it wasn't what it was is now so it was a very different kind of um, terrain, really. 
but that's kind of how we built in terms of the list that's how we built it we built it slowly and very um uh, intentionally but right in terms of the business aspect of it that, that's been the pain and the, the real painful part yeah you know what's fun for me about doing these interviews is i always end up learning so much about industries that are so obvious and, and known, but the on a surface level, but there are so many, I realized doing these interviews, there's so much that I don't know. And as I, as I'm listening to your story and, and like trying to put myself in your shoes and you're doing such a good job of, you know, just giving this like vivid imagery, I'm just imagining what it would be like in 2012, basically to come out and be like, okay, I want to start a publishing company. What is step one? Like I, you, you know, just looking at a computer and I'm just imagining like the, the blinking cursor in Microsoft Word, right, on an empty page. And you're just like, okay, wh where do I go from here? So I assume it's probably, you know, it, it's like a lot of sole proprietor, at least in the beginning businesses, where you kind of just fake it until you make it. So, and, and I touched on it a little bit in my, in my intro, but when you first started, was it was your business always mission driven so yes and no so when i started my, the idea was to kind of fill this gap that i saw was there you know i'd grown up in the uk and when i was going to work as a young woman in london there were all these books flooding in from america you know with black authors and black characters that you know when you're steeped you grew up in this country you're steeped in Shakespeare and Jane Austen and Thomas Hardy and all amazing, amazing writers. But you're always kind of looking for yourself, you know. And so I would try and find these um, books by people like Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and all the, you know, the greats. And there were lots of them being published at that time. But when I came back to the UK, there was hardly anything at all. So that was the goal was to try and find those kind of books because if they could be published before, then I could do it again. But the mission is kind of has grown over the years as we've sort of published more and more writers globally and we've sort of reached this kind of critical acclaim globally. It has kind of taken on a new, um, even more of a, an intentional mission in, in terms of like really trying to be there as a support for emerging Black and Caribbean, Black African Caribbean and Asian writers. You know, that's kind of the, the the kind of i guess the the ethos of the company i mean we do we do publish inclusively so we don't we publish white writers everybody but that particular um group of people that subset or if you like we definitely want to support them and when i started that wasn't happening in the publishing world at all okay so you you think you oh it's, it's been an evolution like all small businesses yeah into definitely. into Right, into finding like your, your true core mission. And it seems like, it seems from the outside, like you've done a really, really good job of that. But yeah. of course, how businesses are perceived from the outside is not always how you perceive things on the inside when you know about all of the day-to-day -day struggles and kind of all, all of the things, all of the fires that you're constantly trying to put out on the back end yeah. of things. And then on the on the front end, you're just like, we're smiling everything is good here nothing to worry about yeah absolutely and i think for me so what's also kind of really made that even more kind of um 
distinct is that critically like so what we've been able to do is publish these books that have gone on and won awards and you know critically acclaimed authors and we've also have quite a you know a couple of strong you know quite quote unquote big names on the list and um, we have one american author Denise McFadden who is amazing she's written about 13 novels and uh, we published her last two novels that she wrote which are excellent books one won the NAACP award for fiction in 2017 the other was long listed for the Women's Prize in the UK. So really, we're able to get some really strong, strong, strong um, books on our list. We also published the Trayvon Martin story. Um, when his parents wrote that book in 2017, we were the UK publisher for that book. So we've done that well. And it's almost like you kind of have to, you shouldn't, but you do separate the two. The business aspect of it is where I feel like a failure all day long, you know, when you know, every day, month then comes and, you know, the income isn't there or, you know, there's weeks on end where there's literally nothing coming in and all I'm doing is writing checks or, you know, sending money out, you know. Um, and that can be demoralising, it really can. And so you could be winning an award on the one hand and, like, you know, you've got zero in your bank account and payroll is due and it's like, you just want to go and crawl under a rock and hope nobody sees you. Right. Them. Oh, the, the, the irony of that, uh, yeah. specifically about being, uh, accepting an award and it's like, okay, I need to go accept this award. And I'm imagining, I'm imagining like a, like a Cinderella story where it's like, okay, I, I need to find a dress to go accept this award so that I can, pr I can present as this big yeah. successful publisher when on the back end, I'm like, okay, I just need to, I need to pay, I need to pay rent and I need to keep the yeah. lights on and I need, yeah. but you're. And, and it's hard, I think, when, and you, I, I guess I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth here, you are doing something that is, you know, again, so mission-driven that I feel like there's the potential for you to feel almost obliged to continue that business because there is such a need for it, that yeah, even that, if it doesn't always make commercial sense, yeah. it, 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 it's like you you can't let the world down you got to oh, keep moving God. forward you hit the nail a hundred percent dead on that's it that is the the crux of the issue that i haven't well not just at the moment but just has come up constantly over the years that people come and tell you you know you've changed my life without you publishing my book I wouldn't have been able to do X, Y, or Z, you know, debut authors that go on and win like major prizes for their books, you know. And so it does, it's, it, it's taken away from you almost in a sense, like it's now out of my hands. Like I just have to wake up in the morning and continue to do this because now it belongs to everybody else but me. And I think that's also this year, I never felt that more than any other year because I had this huge commitment to publish 20 books this year which is like ridiculous for a small press like mine and um then you know obviously we're going to get to it but you know covid hits and so now you know if it if i didn't have that commitment to publish 20 books would i still be i definitely wouldn't have done a crowdfunder i would have just been like let everybody go and you know we'll just see what we can do see how, where we are whenever this thing actually plays itself out but i didn't have i didn't have the luxury of that Right. I, I think what you just said is so, so eloquently put and succinct in that you feel like your business now belongs to everyone but you. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Even though you are the founder, CEO, yeah. you, know, you know, big badass boss woman who's, <laughs> who's running the show, you know, it's almost like you're beholden to the, to the masses to continue the good work that you are doing. And the thing is, like, if it was working the way that you want it to, you know, those sort of stories that you hear of, oh, I just paid off all my credit cards and now I have millions in the bank, yeah. then... Yep. That, that energy that your staff has, that beholdenness, that becomes like the passion for what you're doing and that drives you when you can fund it. But when you don't have the funds to fund that passion that they have for what you're doing and that they bought into and that they're trying to take on for you, that's when it becomes a burden. You know, that's when it becomes something less than satisfying, if you, if you like. Because right. now you can't fulfill that dream for them, you know? Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up the, the pre-COVID segment, can you tell us just a little bit about where you were in terms of headcount, number of staff, uh, what, what an average kind of workload, uh, I, I guess, you know, yours is inherently project-based. Yes. So maybe just like in, a, in an average year, how many books are you publishing before COVID started? Where did you see 2020 going? Um, yeah. You know, just what was your pre-COVID business status? Yeah. So pre-COVID was, you know, up and down, to be fair, it was. So um, like 2017, uh, we published 10 books. 2018, we published three. And uh, that's because we were in dispute with our... So the other thing that happens is when you're a very small press, you can't afford teams, obviously. So you have to outsource everything. And so we're building this list and we have a clear vision of what we want to do and what we want to accomplish. So you do all of that in-house and then you have to hand it over to somebody else to sell into all of the different channels for you. And that person or that organisation, they might have... 50 other publishers, some have as much as 200 other publishers, and they get half an hour with the buyer at Waterstones or half an hour with the buyer at Foils. And so now that book that you know and love and think is going to be amazing and it's going to do all these great things is competing with this person that you've handed it over to with all of the other tools that he's got to go and sell into the buyer. And so what that meant was that we just weren't, we just weren't seeing it. It was literally just like throwing, like just throwing everything away after you've done all this hard work and we were not seeing any money. And this guy was very, uh, he was kind of holding on to what money we were making and rolling it over each month so that nothing was coming into the account. And so at the beginning of 2018, I was just like, this is the year that I end it all. Like I'm finished with Jacaranda. Uh, because, you know, we just we just cannot continue the way. And prior to that, you know, most of the money is coming from me directly. So that's another sort of burden that I've been carrying as well. But so at the same time, because of this, you know, driven mission that's now bigger than what I am, I also realised that I had to, even then, I felt like I had to give it a go, if that makes sense. So what we'd done prior to that was we published a lot of, international voices so i felt it was important to sort of position ourselves in the uk and to try and find the next sort of great strong novels and and memoirs from black britons um because 
the black British authors are completely underrepresented in the market. I think the number of books, say for example, Penguin Random House, like I think they publish about 15,000 books a year and maybe 10 of those are black authors. So a lot of that, yeah, I mean, it's minuscule. It's absolutely minuscule. And so it was just a question of, and there's no reason for that. There's really no reason for that. It's just the way that things are done in this country. So for me as a tiny press to publish 20 Black Britons, it was kind of like, if I can do this as a tiny press, then you guys must be able to do something. So that was our big thing. At the beginning of 2018, I put a call out for submissions. Even as I could only publish three books that year, we had had up prior to that, we'd had five people working for us. We had a, an office space, a, a workspace in London and uh, you know we were trying to make it work and it was just the, the numbers weren't they weren't adding up at all so I got rid of the office space cut the staff down so that it was just two of us and I moved the business back to my house and then I was just like in this weird space of like we need to do this big thing you know but also I need to be out of business you know so it was like this really weird year for us it was a really hard 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 year but we got, you know, some really amazing books coming in. So I thought, okay, we'll see what we can do with this. So we made this announcement. So, so like, it's, it was just like a fairy tale in so many ways. Like I, and th this is going to be one of those weird stories. You're like, oh, shut up, will you? But this really happened <laughs> because, um, so there were two of us. And by the end of that year, this amazing young editor who's been working at a big publishing company came and said she wanted to work for Jacaranda. And I was like, I can't afford you, I can't pay you. She's like, I'm coming. So she came on board. And um, the beginning of 2019, I met this woman. She's like, what do you do? And I was telling her what I did, showed her the website. She's like, oh my God, I think you're amazing. She's like, you know what? I know how hard it is, that what you're doing. I want to support you and I want to invest in you. Come and meet me with your team. So we all, by then now I've got another editor because we've got these 20 books. So I've had to hire these people on a wing and a prayer but we've got these 20 books. So now there's five of us again. Well, Camila is always the fifth element, who's my daughter, who does it from the love of her heart. So we don't pay her, poor thing, don't tell her I said that. <laughs> but so we go down to meet this um, woman in London and she says, I think it's amazing what you're doing. And I know it's really hard, so I want to invest in your business. So she's like, she gave us 25,000 pounds at the beginning of 2019. So we start with 2019, we've gone from three books the year before to 2019, we're commi committed to publishing 20 books in 2020, that was the whole thing, 20 in 2020, that was a hashtag. And um, we've got this £25,000 um, donation. So we said, okay, the girl that came from the big publishing house, she had all these contacts with the media. So she's like, let's send it out and see who comes back to us first. Well, this is a story, right? You know, that this woman's come and wanted to offer us all this money. So we put out a press release to like the, the industry um, outlets and then to the Guardian newspaper and a couple of our news, newspapers. The Guardian came right back immediately and what was going to be just a, like an announcement, Jacaranda gets 25000 from an angel investor, became this story about the money and then about this project and, you know, all the authors and all the books. And it was huge. And it was like one of the top stories that got, you know, retweeted everywhere. And after that, then all of these people came out, you know, like organisations wanting to work with us. So... 
over the course of 2019, all of that was just planning for this year when we would release these books. You know, we got um, collaborations and deals with people like Audible UK and, um, you know, London Library, Foils became a partner for us as well, the bookshop. So everyone was really hyped and excited about the whole process. And uh, yeah, we started the year, we published the first two books at the beginning of the year and then COVID. Okay, that is, <laughs> that is the perfect place because I, I want to hear more so badly. Uh, we're going to take a, well, we're not even going to take a break, but I always end every show with my unsponsor, AKA an awesome business run by an awesome person or people who create an awesome product and that I promote because it deserves, it deserves promotion. So we've started this segment in between uh, the, the pre COVID and before we get in or after pre COVID and before we get into the, the mid COVID, what, what's happening to you now where I want to, I want to turn it over to you to, to, to give me your unsponsor of, of the show. So this is a, a small business that can be anywhere in the world, but hopefully something that, uh, the the tens of followers here can they can theoretically support if if they want to from this from the safety of their sheltering in place at home. Yeah, that's this is such a great great um, segment as well, and I think it's really lovely and generous of you to support other small businesses in this way. Um, and I would like to nominate, if you like, Healthy on You, which is founded in San Diego by Sam Binkley. And it is, uh, they, what she does is, um, outward facingly, she does spice and salt blends um, and with a kind of inspired with musical flair in the, in the titles of each of the blends. But she also runs uh, Healthy On You cooking classes online and at home. And she uses all natural products. She uses organic homegrown vegetables. Um, and she, she always blends her recipes to kind of show a bit of her background. She's a Jamaican American and her husband's from California and it's always a, just a feast for the eyes and the belly really. So that's the company Healthy On You. And I'm, I'm on their website right now, healthyonyou.com. And it's funny because it, it, it looks like this Michelin star restaurant uh, type meals that they have beautiful imagery of, but then it's also uh, there's definitely an element of comedic relief here as I, I look at their their uh, recipe names. They have No Woman, No Spice, uh, Bohemian Bohemian Rosemary. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how you say this word. Cine in a bottle? Cine in a bottle? Um, oh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, While My Za'atar Gently Weeps, Turn Up, turn up the Spice. <laughs> Oh, this is so good. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I've heard other podcasters say this, so I'm just going to say it too. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes and then I'll figure, out later. <laughs> I'll figure out later what that means. Okay. <laughs> so that's healthyonyou.com and you can also find them on Instagram uh, at healthyonyou. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's get back to you, you kind of, or move into the, the mid COVID segment of the show where we'll talk about where you, what happened starting in March, uh, and kind of March, April, May, and now we're up to mid June. It's like, it's mm -hmm. like time is taking forever to pass, but it's also flying by 
it seems like we we just were kind of introduced to this whole COVID thing, and now we're having uh, you know uh, over a hundred thousand people a day worldwide diagnosed, and uh, it's it's uh, it's everywhere in life. So That's right. let let's talk a little bit. You, you were saying that you had published two books prior to the start of COVID. What what did you have uh, on you on the docket for March, April, May? What did you have coming coming up, and how did COVID start to impact you, and and kind of go from there? Yeah. So at the beginning of the year, we had these twenty new titles that we had to publish, as well as a few backlist titles. So that meant that over the course of this year, at minimally two books a month, we had to publish in order to meet that sort of deadline. And in between all of that, you know, we have to obviously um, promote all of these authors. So we were looking at all kinds of events, uh, mostly, most importantly, actually, events where we could sell. So because we, we hand selling when we're direct to consumer, we do a lot better. So we were looking at a number of events across the year that we'd always arranged last year. That meant that we'd be face to face with people and then all the big festivals were happening and I mean, it was an enormous year and by any stretch of imagination and especially for us as a small press. Um, so we published the first two books um, and then it's really interesting because we try to always get a, a timeline of things. My birthday's at the end of January and there was talk about this, this virus at the because I remember us going out and, you know, just kind of like, we weren't concerned at all really, but just little kind of drops of like, hmm, this is interesting. That was in January. Then at the beginning of March, so we're waiting for our government to tell us what to do, essentially, like you need to stay home or everything's fine, whatever. They weren't saying anything. Um, so the five people worked from my house. We have a, an attic space upstairs and that's where we, have, we do um, our business. And I just got really concerned about everybody coming into the house still. So then I said, then, the beginning of March, let's just work from home. I just think it'll be easier, less stress on everyone because there were things flying around. I think at that time, maybe that doctor had died in China and it was getting to be concerning. But other than that, you know, I was still going on meetings and going out and, you know, meeting people. And then um, I think it was sort of the third week of March, um, it was lockdown. It was just like, now you cannot leave your house for any reason you must stay indoors. And literally every single thing that we built that we were looking forward to happening, all of these launches and events and everything just like evaporated, just disappeared overnight because everyone that we were dealing with was also told to shut down. I mean, and I think that's the, the part of it that's like got really kind of, you think about it, it's just mind blowing. That you know, not just you, but like all these big institutions and all these venues and everywhere collapsed. Sorry. So um, yeah. So that was that. So we're in the house, and now I'm trying to think. Okay. So there's no way we're going to make it through this year. It's just not. It's not going to happen. Uh, when we won't be able to publish these books because print costs are high, we're not going to be able to finish what we're doing. And um, at the time, there was a lot of sort of talk around what can we do especially in the publishing world it's an interesting place because there's always a lot of concern in publishing like publishers are always concerned about things and wanting to do the right thing i would give them that but they very really act on it so at the time that i ended up being on a meeting 
with a few other small presses and this organization called Spread the Word. So I was on the meeting with um, a young woman who started a um, children's publishing house called Nights Of, which also had a, a bookshop and bookshops were closed down as well. So everything in her business is just flatlined. And um, uh, an organization called Spread, Spread the Word. And we were talking about what we should do. And then Amy Fallone is the, the founder of um, Nights Of, and she's like, you know what? Let's, they did a, a crowdfunder the year before for their business that went well. So we, we talked about it and we thought, well, how could we do something that would make people care? You know, because why should anyone care? So what your business, everybody's in the same boat. Um, and, but we were like, okay, well, it, we are really sort of focused on publishing though. So initially, so we thought we do the crowdfunder and all the big publishers are going to jump in and save us, you know? Um, and so the idea was that we would, um, we would set the goal for a hundred thousand pounds and we would split it 80% between our two presses because we were doing all of the work and then 20% for our, all the other indies who are small indies are inclusive. And um, the first weekend we, we made about 10,000 pounds. So that was exciting. Um, but you know, obviously a long way off from, uh, from a hundred thousand. And then, um, I think like about two weeks ago, so like a week before George Floyd, we were at about 16,000. And then that happened, that horrible, horrible, horrible murder happened. And within one week, we were over 100,000. And when we closed, wow. I think it kept on going, but obviously we'd reached the, the end date of it. And so when we closed, we were at nearly 175 which I could never have. I mean, I'm just, I'm so humbled by all of it because, you know, you're very much aware. I've, I've not left my house since the beginning of March. We've been locked down. We've just been here. Like everybody else has just been in their homes and there are people out here who are really, really suffering right now. So the idea that anyone would care enough to even put any money in is just mind blowing to me. It really is. Yeah. I, you know, so I'm in my early-ish 30s, and I feel like it's I'm I'm at this point where I'm obviously more aware of the world that is going on around me than I probably have ever been, and I think that's probably just what happens as you are, you know, adulting your way through yeah. life. Yeah, and it seems like this is a certainly the the largest uh series of and of protests on mm. this on this subject in in a way that is going on much longer than it ever than than I have ever seen yeah. um and 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 this is this is obviously with the caveat that I have grown up in like a very white laid back beachy yeah. town and it's funny you know I, when you were saying earlier that you were in san diego and that you prefer cities it's like san diego is the the 10th biggest city in the u.s you know like yeah. we're we're technically a, a, we're theoretically a big city but mm -hmm. we just have that big urban sprawl yeah and it's just kind of it's like it's a big beachy sleep sleepy town basically well, exactly exactly and yeah. and diversity is not the name of the game <laughs> here in san diego at all and so what i am aware of or not or unaware of you know is not necessarily representative of of what's gone on in the rest of the world but 
my point in saying all of that is that it's almost like the 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 absolute standstill that is a lot of the world's business has provided sort of a platform and and almost a, a vacuum that the that the movement after George Floyd was able to uh, expand into and and take on a much larger role in our everyday life than it would have otherwise. Do you do you concur? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I think. So I think it was a combination of factors. I think the fact that across the world we had these leaders, these these you know these so-called strong men in place who were really pushing people, like just regular people, to the limits of what they really felt comfortable with in terms of how they were dealing with things. Like it was it's this sort of aggravated violence towards just things that is not necessary, that for most people, I'm not talking about political persuasion necessarily, but just like your, what, what feels right for anyone, whether you're left or right, you know, was being pushed and pushed and pushed by all these uh, so-called strong men. And the way that the media functioned, it was just coming at you and then you were just doing things. You were busy, you were living your life. Well, now here comes COVID and it's literally like everybody stopped. But this wave of this kind of, I can all, this kind of violence, it's the only way I can describe it, of just like not hearing, never, never backing down, never saying you're sorry about anything, saying whatever you like, however you like, whenever you like, and never back down. This, that, I mean, in no way is that healthy for any, no human being behaves like that, you know, Le- least of all leaders. Like you want your leaders to be better than that. So I think that people being at home and now sort of, forced to like really confront it and have the time to confront it I think in some ways it it just made people just like no this is this is enough and I think what was happening in the UK especially was you know when this the first story started coming out that you know if you're poor and if you're a black or Asian minority you're more likely to die from this virus People are like, no effing way, excuse my language, but you know, it's like not another thing, you know, like really? So yeah. that was a, a real shock to the system for people. And then I, I refuse to watch anybody being like brutalized. So I have not seen that George Floyd bit video, but that I know that the murder of that guy, you know, just, it just, I think it just, those factors, you know, just the, the voice, the, the leaders, the way they're talking and then, now you know you on the bottom no one's ever experienced this virus before no one knows how long it's going to be around there's no cure for it and you're more likely to die from it it's like holy and now here comes this thing so i just think people are tired i think people are tired of that of feeling that their sensibilities are being ignored as human beings you know regardless of which way you vote as a human being you know what's right and you know what's wrong and this is just too many wrongs right right and I, so, uh, gosh, <laughs> you are so insightful. There are so many things that I, 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 I'm, I'm feeling drawn to, to, to address <laughs> here. Um, so one, um, you said that, uh, you know, black, uh, Latinx, uh, Asian, basically minorities are, uh, have, are more likely to die from COVID. It's yeah. not a genetic thing. It is a reflection of how our society has been built in, in terms of 
uh, you know, generations and generations of, of economic growth, uh, sort of on the backs of exploitation of mm -hmm. minorities. And so as a result, you tend uh, minorities disproportionately make up a lot of the uh, kind of in-person service industries, the, the essential workers, if you will, right? And so you have people who can't telecommute, who can't work from home. And so because they are forced to be going out into the world in order to you know, bring home that very necessary paycheck, uh, mm -hmm. they are putting themselves in a position or are forced to be in a position where they are more likely to um, contract COVID. Yeah. So that, that's uh, you know, kind of part one there. What I thought you said, or what, what I thought was so insightful um, about how people have kind of just had it up to here. And it, it got me thinking of how in the, in the um, uh, emergency medical world, you have this term competing pain. And what mm -hmm. that means is, uh, there are certain things that you will do as a as an EMT, as a you know as kind of a first on scene person, where you're dealing with someone who has uh, traumatic injuries, mm. where you will uh, take certain steps if you think that they have com what's known as competing pain. So if you have a a one horrible wound that's occupying all of your all of your um, your body's senses that person, the victim, they may, may not even realize that they have other things going on. And I feel like that is sort of what has happened in what in our, right now with these protests is because we're all at home and we all have time to spend hours on the internet because we're just like literally not allowed to leave that people who aren't necessarily directly affected. And I would mm -hmm. put, I would, you know, the, the me's of the world, yeah, who, yeah. you know, like white middle-class male, I pretty much couldn't have been born into an easier uh, position in life, right? Exactly. If, I, if I don't succeed, like, it, it's my own fault. Like, right. you know, I, I don't have anyone else to blame at, at all. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you're seeing these protests and, you know, there's one my family's going to go to later today uh, mm. in Pacific Beach, which is, you know, predominantly white. And again, but, and it's because there isn't the competing pain of all of the day-to-day the -day distractions yeah. so much, right? It's like we've hit this boiling point where it's, it's really, uh, it's just at the forefront and you just, you'd, you have to have just the biggest blinders on right now if you're not seeing what, what is going on. And so right. it's, it's, and I, I address this in the beginning of the show, it's, uh, it's refreshing to have someone on the show who is uh, there's like a glimmer of hope for humanity based off of just the off of the the GoFundMe or the the, the crowdfunding yeah. platform that I, I don't know which one it was specifically that you ran, but that there was so much interest and success in this one little instance. Do you feel like this is something that will? And this is such a hard question, <laughs> but where we are now with the knowledge you have today, do you feel like this is something that the positive momentum will continue out of it? Um, and, and, you know, how do we move forward to continue to, to maximize this, this very rare opportunity that's a, a horrible confluence of events that has yeah. led to a positive opportunity? I mean, yeah, because that's the goal, isn't it? You really don't want to lose it because what that's what it is. It's an opportunity. Um, and I think I think what we have to do 
is to get back to just dealing with each, uh, with each other as human beings. I know it sounds so cliche and so simple, but I think that what's happened is, especially in America, it's the demonization of, of people who don't think like you. And they do it on both sides, you know. No, I hate you to use that phrase, but you know, like, it, so you, you see, you've got all these videos of these women out there, like telling people how they should be living their life or they're gonna phone the police on them. But we have to remember that that's just a moment in time in that person's life. And that whatever the, the social media judgment of that person is, is not the whole story of that person's life. And in right. the same way, that that person is more than just that moment in Central Park or, you know, wherever these things are happening. In exactly the same way, that's how we need to look at black people and brown people. They're not, what we are not is just not a conglomeration of criminals and illegal aliens and, you know, drug addicts. You know what I mean? Like whatever the perception is that the media throws at you in these little bite-sized moments, and because you don't know anything else, you just that's what you cling to. So I think the the the, the whole the whole thing about this virus is it is it's asking us to be bigger or actually to be up more of ourselves, to be more of our human selves and to not not buy into this idea that you know if you're a Republican, I can't speak to you. If you're a Democrat, I hate you. Like that has to stop. If you're black, I hate you. If you're white, I hate you. That it's, it's, it's got to stop. It's just got to stop. And it's not about like, it's not like the Disneyfication of difference. You know what I mean? It's not about just saying that, oh, you know, let's all just get along. Or I think there's um, this actress and she's got a book out about purple people. No, it's not about everybody being purple. It's about being who we are. And sometimes who we are is uncomfortable and awkward and not cool, you know, but it's not about being hateful. And it's not about being, you know, murderous, you know. So those, I think that's what it's calling us to be. If we can try to just be, be better humans, I think we're going to be able to do so much more on this planet. But it can't be about politics and it can't be about, you know, somebody has to be better than somebody else or somebody has to be worse off. I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, the day when they did that on the news, they had this story early on in this virus and it was like oh due to you know um it's it's transpiring that people who are black and brown are literally dying like not and everyone like so there was a bus driver who was complaining about not having ppe driving the bus and then the next time he was on the news he was dead you know and it's just like such a shock to the system to see that it's just half unfolding before your very eyes and once you start to sit back and think about all the ways in which we could be so much better as human beings and as society just a better society run better thought better think better be better you know it just it really was just completely demoralizing it was just like oh my god my mom's 95 years old so i'm like well i'm not gonna ever see my mom that's for sure because no way do I want to put her in harm's way. And you just start to think about these things and it's just, yeah. So I know I'm kind of rambling a bit, but I just think that, I think we, what it's calling us to do, this virus, is to be better people and to not allow our better selves to be hijacked by politicians and their politicking and just to be vigilant. Like we have to be aware of when that's happening to us and aware of what's, you know, what we've been sold constantly. Um, and just, you know, be better people, be better people and call it out, you know, call out all kinds of transgressions as you see them in front of your face and don't be 
so eager to walk away or turn your back or think, well, it doesn't, you know, it's not my problem, so I'm not going to deal with it. So yeah, lots yeah, of <laughs> yeah. Gosh, there. It, it's like it's like right now. The it, it reminds me of any time in like the early 20th century in in Russia in in like czarist Russia or you yeah. know the 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 Bastille or or you know the French Revolution or like where the 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 people the masses are just tired of yeah. of being exploited and when you see something and it's one thing if it's like okay yeah well we we know like the 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 quintessential rich white CEO. Well, yeah, he doesn't pay taxes, but like, whatever, that's just the system and it's fine. And like, I pay my taxes and it's fine. But then it's another thing when it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. The people in my community are, are dying because of this, this, this pandemic. And the, you know, the, the, the man in the, the man in the high castle or, you know, whoever, mm -hmm. the man behind the curtain, whatever, the man mm -hmm. can't be bothered to supply PPE yeah. to the front you know, like there was just a, a a radio segment on here locally where they were interviewing um, uh, uh, undocumented uh, workers, how they were afraid to go to work because they didn't have PPE. But then, of course, they can't. But it's not supplied uh, at work. And so they have to literally supply their own out of, you know, pro pro procured out of pocket. And it's just like, yeah. in what world is that fair? And then yeah. and then my, you know, kind of economic whatever training the the paradigm that i see the world through is like well if you're a good capitalist why wouldn't you spend the extra few dollars to protect your worker who even if you're just viewing them as a dollar sign as like a quantifiable you know and and that is obviously a super loaded uh yeah. idea in and of itself but like yeah. even if you if you don't care about the humanity of that person like surely you value the training that you've put into this person like yeah. it just seems so short-sighted yeah. to not be willing to invest just a few you know a few dollars or a few pennies a day basically to get the 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 gloves and the 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 hepa mask a, a truly filtering hepa mask not like a gator or you know a scarf yeah. that people are wearing around their their mouths to uh, around their their yeah around their faces to protect others from their uh, from from whatever they could potentially be carrying, but like an actual filtration mask. And I understand like they've been in short supply, what whatever. Yeah, but, like, there are things that people can be doing yeah. to to uh, you know to be protecting their workforce in a way that just says, hey, I value you as a human, yeah. in, just in like the barest sense of the word. So and I, yeah. That, yeah. that's what's fatiguing to, to people like when you when you think about things like that like so many examples of that like why are they just not doing the right thing and you're just tired you know yourself you're just oh god you know somebody step up and do the right thing yeah and the the only answer to that to that question is you think of your employees as just a commodity and a replaceable one at that that's like the only and yeah. and that's like a fallacy in and of itself because again like we're talking about you know just the the training costs and like there's just so many other things that go into it and i i i'm hoping that out of all of this it is is you're seeing um 
maybe public perception playing more into the decisions that are being made at the higher yes. levels in yes. the boardrooms about how to maybe treat their workers and treat yeah. just treat humans. Just so treat, yeah. I feel like you, you and I could, could talk a lot about this for a long time. <laughs> so I yeah. do want to bring it back to your your business and kind of what you what will you be able to do as a result of this successful uh, crowdfunding yeah. that you just did. And then maybe, and then we can move from there into kind of the next few months. Yeah. So, I mean, in me, just immediately off the bat, we'll be able to just finish the publishing program for the year. Um, and we're still, you know, it's still going to be tight because obviously we're not fully aware of, you know, in the UK, we're opening up like on Monday, they're opening up business, businesses, but um, we're still not fully, you know, sure about exactly what that's going to look like so in terms of like properly doing events behind these books we don't know but it means in the, you know we can continue to publish these books this year and also because we made uh, the amount that we did we're going to be able to give a bigger portion to other small presses which is also really great so we'll be able to dispel disperse some of that those funds through four or five other very small micro businesses one or two people um, so that's going to be great to help them and, you know, going forward, I mean, it's a really challenging one because obviously we still have to buy books for next year. So we, the acquisition phase is now for next year. Um, actually, it's almost late for next year. So we, and we, we're buying books in, in a different kind of like um, ignorance, if you like. So I always have to buy books based almost like on a hunch, you know, it's, it's just a gamble, some of these titles. So I always have to do that anyway, but you're also gambling in terms of what the market will look like. You know, will there be bookshops still available? Um, will there be venues? Will, will there be outlets for your books? And then also really are competing now because all of the big publishers shut down too. So now remember, I told you how many books we publish a year. So there's going to be a complete like um, bottleneck at the end of the year, you know, come September, of all of these titles that need to now be pushed out to the market. Um, so it's going to be an interesting next few months in terms of, you know, we have to we have to jump into that water regardless, you know. But it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, there's definitely an added degree of difficulty for businesses whose business model is based off of. Uh, uh, predicting something out in the future and then having to put your money where your predictions are okay. in terms of an outflow of cash yeah. in the beginning and then hoping that that comes back to you in two months three months or for you for you a, a year a year and yeah. a half exactly. and so that you know you, okay you just raised uh, like two hundred thousand us dollars well, that could that could all go out for you know advances or or deposits yeah. on this and that, and then it's like, well, oh, sorry, book bookstores are now illegal. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. it's Fahrenheit four fifteen, and and goodbye. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly that. That money can be evaporated within seconds, and even the the kind of you know kind of unsurety that we had before, when all the bookshops are open and all the channels were open. Now that's just impacted upon because we don't know if they're going to be open and we are competing for space, which we've always been competing for space, but we're definitely going to be competing for space with the bigger publishers. So as you're competing for physical space, for sure, and then I guess you're competing for 
you know, space and, and, and creating, uh, you know, just carving out your little niche in, in the, you know, in the universe, if you will, yeah. mm -hmm. even if it's in, you know, in a digital space where there's theoretically infinite space, yeah. obviously there's, there's still like only so much time that people have. And if there are a million books being released in the same month when there's usually only a hundred thousand, then like, it's really hard to, to, to stand out from those. Yeah. Have you seen an increase in a web traffic and b online uh, purchases? I guess through Jacaranda yeah. Books. Yeah, so that's been a really, really interesting and kind of potentially exciting thing for us. Again, it's how you deal with it. But so we've always wanted to build our direct to consumer via, via online selling because we know like that's a much better option for us than as i said before we're always compete competing with the big publishers so they buy up the front of the bookshop they buy tables on the bookshop you might be lucky to get them to take five copies of your book you know and if they don't sell five you're getting them right back so it's always been an option uh, or a desire for us to build that online so last year one of the things that we did with that investment that we got was to build a website that had e-commerce on it so that we were actually luckily prepared for this moment in a way and uh, it has been amazing like we've seen really so we were making about maybe a thousand pounds a month on our website with not doing anything not really doing any marketing because the other issue that we have is we're a small team so the resources in terms of people you know are really 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 stretched you know we just don't have enough people to do all the things we need to do as well um but since this happened you know we've seen four or five times as much um already just this month you know we're way ahead of where we were last month so and we're just trying to keep building keep building on that building on that building on that but again it's about resources and you know finding out what the best practices are and learning how to do that and i know you know we, when it comes to business it's easy to just keep throwing money at it and thinking oh we'll just keep throwing money and it will work but we know that's not the way forward so we're just trying to be really sort of sensible about how we do it going forward yeah well my my hope is that this out of all of this there comes uh a a glass half full kind of a, a, a or not even a glass half full but just a, a positive inflection point for yes. your business and that it's something that is sustained and that it, you know continues on and that it's not just a fleeting moment and i know what what i'm seeing in my circles is a desire to be more educated about what you touched on in the beginning of this about the the other right about the the existence of someone who's walking in a very different set of shoes than what yeah. you are and yes. so it seems like if there if that desire to expand your awareness of of the world that we all live in if that continues it would seem like that would bode well for yeah. your business model in a way that will very much improve this world that we all live in yeah no that's, statement I, but i you know i think, no, I think it's no, true honestly grant that is it like that's what we are hoping and praying will happen because we're here ready to try as much as we can to facilitate that you know we really want to be able to say hey listen if you really want to know and you really want to learn here are some great books that you can read and just you know develop your mind in that way and hopefully people will continue to want to learn and, and understand yeah yeah well i 
gosh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so hopeful and I'm glad that like, I just have something, um, positive to hang my hat on because it seems like there, there are, there are so many, there are so many reasons to be sad, mad, frustrated with the, the current existence. And so to know that your, your business is, is, is thriving and is not only like a, a, um, a commercially successful enterprise, but it's something that is like genuinely improving the, the human existence around us. Aww. So I, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's just so obvious. Like, you know, you look at your website for like two seconds, you're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This is, this is, this is a force for good. So um, as we kind of wrap things up here, if people want to be a more knowledgeable and then be ab about you and your, your background and, and your business, and then also want to support, um, you know, to support your business, to, to purchase from you, what is the best way that people can, can do that? Definitely go to the website. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's, um, www.jackarandbooksartmusic.co.uk I'm very sorry. Jackarand is a very popular name for businesses, apparently. So I had to keep on adding words to get the domain that was like available. So, so <laughs> Jackaranda Books Art. Art, Music. Just Art, no S. So Jackaranda Books Art, and I was looking last night on your website and you do ship to the US. We do, we do indeed. Yeah, so, and I was, I was noticing it's like 10 bucks or something and it's a flat rate. Um, so the more books you get, the, the less that shipping cost per book is. So really, exactly. if, when my tens of listeners go to your website, it, it, it would, they would almost be, it'd be foolhardy not to load that shopping cart up and 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 buy every book you have available really i mean agreed i am yeah. there with you grant 100 yes. percent. they're basically gonna, they're losing money if they're not if they're not <laughs> buying 10 15 bucks at a time from you that's right you're good you're good you need to come and be my sales guy over here oh, oh yeah <laughs> well, I wouldn't be the first family member to come work for you my my amazing and talented uh sister christina who also does all of our um, w designs, um, for the, for the, for our website, for our, our graphics. She's also done a lot of your book covers. She has, and she's brilliant. She's brilliant. She really is. One of the book covers that she's done is actually really selling well. Um, the womanish cover. Yeah. So yeah. yeah she loves Christina to pieces and Stevie's been as well. Been great. So yeah. Yeah. And Lee's been too. Yeah, oh. yeah, all of them. Um, yeah, well, get your mom out here. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, uh, we're definitely gonna have to have you back on the show because I want to hear more about um, how things go and and you know oh, I know it's it's such a a, a long uh, business cycle for you, but I I want to hear how things how things go and um, you know if you're able to 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 get all of these books out on time and and see how the the industry continues to evolve. Um, oh, I'd love and, to update you. I feel like the the success of your business will be a reflection of the positive uh, trend of of um, our society's like consciousness. Um, I hope so, Gron. Yeah. 
I hope so. We need that. We need a positive trend of consciousness. That's what we need. A hundred percent. And I think that is a, a great notion to end on. So with that, I'm going to say <laughs> thank you, Val, for being a guest. And uh, yeah. I definitely look forward to, to speaking more with you soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much to Valerie Brandis for being on the show. You can support her business and all the amazing authors she works with at jacarandabooksartmusic.co.uk. I end each episode with an unsponsor, aka a small business that has no idea I am recommending them and definitely is not paying. They are just awesome people producing an awesome product that deserves a little shout out and maybe even your support. So today's unsponsor of the show is Hemlock Hats. Perfect for summertime, they make really comfortable straw hats with unique inner cloth designs. So you can express yourself with some personalized face shade underneath a hemlock hat, and of course find them at hemlockhats.com. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for use of their song Geronimo. Thank you to Pasty Design and all the amazing work they have done in creating smallbizgoneviral.com, our logo, etc. Check out their work at pastydesign.com. And yes, by they, I mean my sister Christina, because it's her company. Like I always say, this show is designed to be an audio shoulder to cry on and a reminder to small business owners that you are not alone. So if you know a small business owner whose business has been affected, which odds are you do, please share this podcast with them. Trust me, it'll make them feel, you know, like they're not alone in this. And if they are well-spoken and or entertaining, please share them with me at smallbizgoneviral.com so they can share their story and entertain the tens of you out there listening. Check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes, show notes, and a list of the unsponsors. Someday soonish, this will all be over. Until then, stay safe, socially distance, wear your mask, cool guy, and stay positive. It's even okay to be nice to strangers, because remember that we are all in this together. Mm-hmm.